so when I was a very young child, like three or four years old, my brother, my older brother, had an interesting way of dealing with me. Um, and for context, my older brother, he's only like 15 months older than me. For So for all intents and purposes, we just totally grew up together. We went through school together. We graduated high school together. Uh, and now we live together out in Centennial. We share an apartment. And so don't worry, there's a happy ending to this story. But, but when we were young, when I was three or four years old, he was maybe four or five years old, he would express his displeasure towards me by biting me. That's how he decided to do it. He, instead of like punching or kicking or hitting or screaming, he would just lean down and chomp me on my arm. When uh, I was playing with his transformer, I had the Legos that he wanted, something like that, he would just like go down like a, like a snake and just like, bam, right on my arm. Now, this was traumatizing for a three or four-year-old Nathan. Probably would be equally terrifying for a 24-year-old Nathan today. But uh, the benefit, believe, me, believe it or not, there is a benefit to having a brother that bites, is that there's evidence. <laughs> and so I'd go running to mom, and I'd be like, mommy, mommy, Trenton bit me. And I'd have teeth marks to prove it. And so she would go, and she'd spank him, she'd discipline him, whatever. And it continued. She, for some reason, he would just keep biting me. And not my little sister, not my older sister, it was just me. I was, I was the victim of this interesting way, uh, this interesting outlet. Um, so one day, my, uh, my, I was playing with him or something, and he leaned down and bit me on my arm. I can still remember just like seeing the teeth marks right there on my forearm. And go to mom, it's like, mom, try to bit me again. And my mom's like, I, I don't know what to do. He's a great kid in every, every other respect, and yet he just keeps biting him. And so my mom, after sitting him down and explaining, here's what you did wrong. This is what you shouldn't do. It's like, you shouldn't bite. Uh, she leaned down and very, very gently bit him on the arm as well. And his eyes got as big as saucers. And she can tell the story way better. His eyes got super duper big. He started bawling his eyes out and he never bit me ever again. And I was overjoyed. It was great. I mean, sometimes you gotta fight fire with fire. I'm not a parent, but I imagine someday I might also get to the point where I'm willing to bite my kid if that's what you're saying. <laughs> Please don't quote me on that later. But, but uh, in order for my brother to stop biting me, my mother and my parents, really, they were in an interesting position of monitoring and modifying my brother's behavior. And as a young child, the, the parents have to do that. They have to explain to their kids, this is acceptable behavior. This is what is right. This is what is wrong. This is how we live and interact with the world around us. But as we get older, we take that responsibility and that burden on ourselves. And we start to learn, this is how I act in certain situations. Oh, I'm in this fraternity now, and so we say these things, and we wear these clothes, or, you know, I work in this sort of office environment, and so on Fridays, we do this. Or, you know, I'm hanging out with this family member, and so you are better sure that I'm not going to bring up that topic, or that person, or that one incident years and years ago, like biting. Um, <clears throat> But everyone, and so we, we get good at this, really. We get good at learning how to monitor and modify our behavior in order to be successful and in order to be liked by the world around us, in order to fit into a situation that we find ourselves in. But every once in a while, and I'm sure that if we took some time, we could all remember instances where this occurred, usually under stress or duress, or if we're anxious or upset or angry, we will say or we will do or we will even perhaps think things that take us totally off guard, that make us wonder, where in the world did that come from? Why did I say something like that to someone that I thought I loved so much? Why did I lash out in that way to that person? 
Or perhaps, why did I think such an awful, terrible thing about someone that's so close to me and that I respect so much? And it might cause us to wonder, where does that stuff come from? If, if I'm so good at knowing how to act and behave in situations, how is it that sometimes I can go so far off script that I can wonder, is, was that even me? Where did that come from? And the people around us, they're like, we know where it come from. It was from right there. You just did it. We heard you. We saw you. And yet, it feels so unlike us. It feels so foreign. So where does that come from? Why do we do stuff like that? So that's what I want to talk about this morning. We're in this series called Guardrails. Uh, and the, the idea, the premise of guardrails is that a guardrail is a personal line that is uncomfortable for you to cross. And if you were here for the first sermon in the series a few weeks ago, you may remember the, the kind of pivotal core verse that Josh brought up uh, as we're talking about guardrails. And it's this. It's Proverbs 4, verse 23. And it says this. Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. And this is Solomon writing. Solomon, who, uh, if, if you may or not be familiar with the, the Bible, the Old Testament, Solomon was king of the Israelites. And the Israelites, if you've ever read the Old Testament, really hard to get away from the Israelites in the Old Testament. They're kind of like the, the star people group of the Old Testament. And Solomon is their king. But he's not just their king. He is reportedly one of the wisest men to have ever lived. And not only was he wise, but he was internationally acclaimed for his wisdom and his, his, his knowledge and aptitude at dealing with legal situations and tough problems. And he was rich, and he was famous, and he was wealthy, and people would come from all over to hear his wisdom, to talk with him, to give him gifts, to see his kingdom. And over time, all of his sayings, all the things that he, he, he said, and all of these wise proverbs, if you will, they were written down in a book called Proverbs. And it's just like this awesome collection of wisdom from one of the wisest men to have ever lived. And yet, in this verse, and I don't have the, the previous ones up there, the previous two verses are Solomon building up to this idea, just saying, hey, above all else, listen up. This is going to be on the test. Like, if we were kids running out of class as the bell was ringing, this is what he was going to say so that we wouldn't forget it. Above all else, guard your heart. Because everything you do flows from it. And really quick, that word heart there, uh, the, the idea of that word heart means, uh, it literally translates as the inner man. Like, the core, central component of our being. And as much as our physical heart that beats and sends blood through our body is the central component of our circulatory and of our, like, our entire physical nature, our heart that Solomon is talking about here is that central, core thing that apparently everything flows out of. And back when Solomon wrote this passage, this probably would have come across a little bit differently to his audience. You see, the Israelites have been, were, were centuries deep into a culture of religious structure that God himself put in place. He said, you guys are going to give these offerings if you mess up in this way. Uh, every year you're going to take a goat and put all the sins on him and send him out into the wilderness. And you can make another goat and you're going to slaughter him, put the blood on the altar. All of these things were very externally focused, if you will. They were focused on these external Reparations for external actions. And so for Solomon to say something like this would have been received like with, like people would have been taken aback just a little bit. Like, what do you mean? Why, why are you saying that everything flows from here and that we should guard it more than anything else? Because it seems like all that God really cares about is just like, I check the box. You know, just like a goat is a goat no matter how I feel about it at the moment. 
But Solomon wasn't the only one to say something like this. He actually wasn't even the first one. Because his father, David, wrote this equally controversial passage saying something even more, perhaps, startling. In Psalm 51, verses 16 through 17. And this is what David wrote, Solomon's dad. Talking to God. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. And that word contrite, that basically means uh, like, like sorrowful. Not, not guilty, per se, but like sorrowful and, and like regretful in a healthy way. And David is saying this, my sacrifice is a broken spirit. A, a remorseful heart is something that you will not despise, O God. And in this day and age, this sentiment would probably have been bonkers. What David and Solomon were saying about the importance of the heart and everything that we do flowing out of it would have been received in a very different way back in this culture. So then we fast forward a couple thousand years later and we get to Jesus. And at this moment, when we, when we pick up a few thousand years later, Jesus is talking with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the people that, we, they were the biblical experts. They knew the scriptures, like, or at least the Old Testament, the part that they had back then. They knew them forward and backward, side to side, left, right, up, down. And they knew everything. They kind of skipped over the stuff that David and Solomon were saying, unfortunately. And they were all focused on those rules. You see, like God had put this structure of rules, this framework together to live by. And so the Pharisees were like, okay, cool, that's great. Um, there's some holes here. Let's fill in some gaps. Let's get some spackle and let's fill in the cracks. Like, okay, we're going to add this rule, man-made rule that we just kind of made up in order to connect these pieces together that otherwise wouldn't make as much sense as we would like them to. Oh, and then um, as a part of this feast and the sacrifice over here, we're going to add on this tradition on top of it in order to, to like better, um, better keep this tradition, to make it a little bit more uh, like fancy and in a way that we kind of like it. Um, and uh, sorry, what's my place? And so at this point, they were talking with Jesus, and they were uh, and they come to Jesus and saying like, "Hey, your disciples they didn't wash their hands before they ate," which back then was a big deal because that was a law that the Pharisees made up in order to be like clean or something. And so they were coming to Jesus, basically saying like, "Hey, the people that are following you they are obeying all these man-made rules and laws." I don't think this mic is working anymore. Alright, cool. I'm going to both my hands around now. They are not following the rules. They're not washing their hands before they ate. And that's super important because we said so because like, if you peel back the onion in layers and layers, it's all kind of based on something that God set forth a couple thousand years ago that's sort of related if you squint really hard for 2,000 years. <laughs> and so this is what Jesus said in response to the Pharisees coming to him arguing about his disciples breaking one of their main rules. He says this in Matthew 15, 16 through 20. Are you still so dull? Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. And these are the things that defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. And at this moment, Jesus is doing what Jesus always did best. He is getting down to the core of the problem. Is that all the external stuff 
that the religious structure kind of like dealt with was that. It was exactly that. It was totally external. All of that comes from somewhere. And that's the stuff that hurts us. And that's the stuff that hurts people that we love. And that's the stuff that hurts people that God loves as well. So Jesus getting down to the very core of the problem. He's saying, no, I don't care if you don't wash your hands. How's your heart? Where is your heart at? Where is all of that stuff coming from? That's what I want to look at with a magnifying glass. I'll give you a hint. If you start putting layers and layers of rules and regulations over a religious structure based upon externalities, it starts to get really, really easy to hide from the heart. It starts to get really, really easy. So have you ever done something or said something or thought something that made you go, where in the world did that come from? Why was, was that even me that was talking? Was that even my thought that entered my head? Then you have bumped into exactly what Solomon and David and Jesus were talking about. Is you were seeing something deep down inside come out into the external. And um, that leads us into this kind of the, the big idea for this morning that I want to present here is this. Our behavior will eventually mirror our hearts. Our behavior, the things that we do on the outside, will eventually mirror our hearts. What is deep down on the inside is going to eventually make it out onto the outside. And this is something that we have all seen before. We may have even experienced it before. Do you know anybody that has sabotaged a relationship or a, a close friendship because of what came out of here? Do you know anyone that has alienated their children because of how they behaved in the home? Do you know anyone that destroyed an entire career based on a couple of really stupid things that they did that just kind of make you sit back and wonder, like, why in the world would they do something like that? And yet they still did it. This is why guarding your heart is so important, because all of that stuff that goes on to the outside comes from somewhere deep on the inside. And that's the stuff that hurts us, and hurts people that we love, and it hurts people ultimately that God loves. So then, how's your heart? That's what Jesus cares about. That's what he cares about. That's what we should care about, too. Because if that's where all this stuff comes from, we should take a magnifying glass. We should take a microscope to the heart and see what is in there, what's going to come out of there, and stop the problem before it becomes even a problem. Um, and we're in this series, again, called, called Guardrails. And we've been talking up to this point about like uh, finances, and friendships and certain levels of relationships, and and in those situations, we've uh, like Josh has been um, presenting like handy handy guardrail, kind of like guidelines to say like, hey, this is how you might know when you're straying into financial duress. Like, here's a useful guardrail setup, or like, hey, here's a situation where you might just want to put a stop on a certain relationship or a certain friendship if you see that it is pulling you in an unhealthy direction. And so, when it comes to the heart. We also want to have those sorts of guardrails, but unfortunately it's, a lot, it's, it's more difficult to say like, oh, here's a useful guideline for you because the heart for every single one of us is totally different. We're totally different, unique people. We react to our circumstances and our surroundings in totally different ways. And so I don't have 
anything to give on that respect. But thankfully, God does. And he has given us these emotions, these emotional indicators, these guardrails of our heart that help to indicate where our heart is at if we're straying in the wrong direction and if we need to change course. And so these are four emotions that I want to present this morning as kind of useful guides or categorizations for indicating, and they're, they're really just indicators of what might be a heart problem. And they're these, guilt, anger, greed, and jealousy. Four indicators that are helpful in understanding, is this, am I, am I going, um, is my heart going to be causing issues soon in this area? So guilt. Guilt is best described like this. I owe you. <clears throat> I owe you something. I, I have done something in order to create a gulf between us, so now I have to give you something or pay you back in order to make things right between us. And usually it's pretty easy to know what got you into that situation, right? Like if you feel guilty about something, it's pretty easy to tell like, oh yeah, I said that. Or like, oh yeah, <laughs> I bit him on the arm. <laughs> Definitely understand like where this is coming from. But usually, it's a lot harder to understand what it's going to take to pay that person back. You can't unbite my arm. And guilt separates relationships, and it places tension between people. It leads to keeping secrets, leads to dishonesty, and ultimately distance between people. Because I know I hurt you, I know that whenever you look at me, you're reminded of that hurt, and I don't know what to do about it. I don't know how to fix it. I don't know what I have to do in order to pay you back sufficiently so that we're okay again. So it's a lot easier for me to just stay over there, move across the country, or just stop replying to your texts. There is no rest for the guilty person around the person that they've hurt. Second one is anger. And anger is the opposite side of that coin, is that you owe me. That you have done something to me, you have taken something from me, and until you pay me back, we're not okay. And if you don't pay me back, I'm going to pay you back. And you're probably not going to like it. And uh, the, the, the sermon series uh, that, that we're pulling this, this series guardrails from, from North Point, Andy Stanley, he preached on, a, a, he preached on this, and uh, I love the way that he said it. He said, anger is never isolated to the relationship of origin. Anger is never isolated to the relationship of origin. It leaks into everything. It leaks into the relationships with people that remind you of that person or of that hurt. Until you pay me back, I will hold it against you and everyone that reminds me of you. And greed. Greed is I owe me. And if you were here a couple weeks ago for Josh's sermon last, the, the third part of guardrails, then you might remember he was talking about our stuff, he was talking about our money, he was talking about generosity, all that. And you may remember his, his, uh, the, that line from the sermon, the assumption consumption, that, that greed is the assumption that it's all for my consumption. And greed is a filter by which every single decision that has to do with our resources has to pass through. And as greed continues, that filter gets finer and finer and finer and finer until once we satisfy ourselves, there's nothing left to go back out. 
And greed, it's, we often think about greed in terms of our, our finances, our money, our paycheck, our things, that, that one car, or that retirement house, the cottage, or something. But really, greed goes beyond just money and stuff. It can be time, it could be your energy, or even just your attention. Anything that is ours, that is a resource, that can be spent upon ourselves, will go through the filter. And ultimately, our stuff and our money, our time, our attention, our energy, will all become more important than the people around us. And so a good sign that there might be greed deep down on the inside is that if you've ever wanted to give, if you've ever wanted to contribute, if you've ever wanted to spend more time or spend more attention or energy, but you're afraid of what you'll miss out on, it's a pretty good indicator that greed might have factored into the equation. And then finally, jealousy. Jealousy is life owes me. That the way that the universe has shaken out, everything kind of landed where it fell, that ultimately, I got shorted in that exchange. That you got what I deserve. You got the promotion that I've been working so hard for. Or you got that one girl that I've been interested in for a really, really long time. Or you got the place on the varsity team that I've really wanted for a long time, but I'm just probably not as good as you. And the, now, now that you got what I don't, what, now that you got what I thought that I deserved, I don't like you anymore. And the clear sign of jealousy, the clearest indicator that jealousy might be somewhere deep here on the inside, is if you've ever caught yourself celebrating or rejoicing when someone else suffers loss or failure, especially in the area that you're jealous about. If you've ever caught yourself thinking in that way, I sure know I have. As I was, as I was writing this, I thought of one specific person in one very specific area, and Yep, that one, that one set off some alarm bells. So if you see these in your life, if you see guilt, if you see greed, if you see anger or jealousy causing rifts and barriers in relationships, it's something that needs to be addressed. Because what's deep down here on the inside doesn't ever stay there. It comes out. And it comes out into the stuff that hurts us, comes out into the stuff that hurts other people that we love, it comes out in the things that hurt people that God loves. So what do we do about it? Now that we know, like maybe there's maybe there's something that's that one of these has, has triggered a thought, or triggered a face, or triggered a memory, or triggered a conversation. What do we do about it? Thankfully, God has not left us all alone in this. It's like He created us. He knows exactly what it is that we're thinking and dealing with, and He understands. And he has set forth a way for us to live. He has. In the Bible, it talks about how we should live, therefore. But I want to say this. Before we dive into these like, solutions, if you will, or perhaps like, kind of like a different path to take, if you recognize one of these indicators coming up, if you don't follow Jesus, Nathan Gherkins has no say in your life. I don't. If you have not ever given your life to Christ and said, I'm going to follow Jesus in the way that he wants me to live my life, then what I'm about to say, well, you haven't signed on to it yet. 
I hope that you're listening. I'm really, really glad that you're here. But this is the point where if you are not following Jesus, you can tune out. I hope you don't. If you do follow Jesus, if you've given your life to him and you've accepted the way that he has uh, called us to live, this isn't optional. This is what you signed on for. This is how he has called us to live life and to face these situations. This is it. And again, if you don't follow Jesus, I ask that you would still listen and pay attention to what Jesus says to do with these indications of a heart problem. Because we talk a lot as Christians about like, oh, Christianity, following Jesus, it'll make your life better. It will make you better at life. Like, there, there are benefits of following Christ, and I absolutely believe that is the case. And what we're going to see here is some of those, those benefits. And even if you don't follow Jesus, you can still realize these benefits. Even if you don't necessarily follow the one who's put all of this out, you can still realize benefit from it. There's still some usefulness in here that you can gain. So going back through the four... Kind of a one-word, um, one-word summary of what to do with it. And again, this is not supposed to be like total, like to uh, this won't like fix everything immediately. Like these are summaries only. Like entire sermon series can be dedicated to these topics. So this is just a broad overview here. This is like um, broad-spectrum antibiotics for heart condition. <laughs> so uh, I'm an engineer. So if you're a doctor and that didn't make any sense, I'm really sorry. <laughs> That's a metaphor I went with. So the first one, guilt. So the, the answer to guilt is to confess. And it's really easy to just say there. Just like, oh yeah, you're guilty towards someone? You should confess. So absolutely. And if you've, but it's, but it's like probably one of the hardest ones in here. This is the one that I have the, the hardest time with. If you have wronged someone, the best thing to do is to get it out into the open. And if you've grown up in the church or you're familiar with certain ways of like following Jesus, then you may uh, be familiar with the idea of confessing to God in prayer or confessing to another person on the side of some physical barrier. And that is awesome. That is all well and good. It should start there. It shouldn't end there. Amen. Confession ultimately should be with the person that you want. That should be the end goal of confession. But some things, honestly, are just too much to just start by saying, oh, I need to confess to that person. It's going to waltz right up to them and say, like, hey, I wronged you. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. That it is understandably sometimes just way too high of a barrier to cross. So start by confessing it to God. Bring honesty to your own mind and to your own conscience. Release it into the open so that you can actually face it in your own mind. And tell it to God. He already knows, but he won't see you any, and, and therefore he won't see you any different for it. And then the next thing to do is confess it to somebody that's in your life. Maybe not the person that you wronged, but someone close to you, someone important to you, someone that you can trust with that information. And talk with them. And tell them about it. And ask them to help you move towards that goal of confessing to the person that you wronged. And this comes with a warning. There's, there's an asterisk on this. This will cause damage. Confession causes damage. It will. It will damage relationships. It will damage your reputation. It will damage the way that people see you sometimes if you come out into the open and tell the world how you messed up. You are entrusting that person that you wronged with the knowledge and the information and the details of exactly how you wronged them. And you are putting bullets into their gun that they could ultimately turn on you. 
But ultimately, this is what will cause healing and peace on the inside, despite the chaos on the outside. There will be peace inside. So the answer to anger is to forgive. And this, this honestly might be the most neglected one. As we look around in this world today, anger seems to be one of the most pervasive and accepted ways that people will be driven apart from each other. It's like, you hurt me, you took something from me? All right, cool, there's distance now. And I imagine every single one of us can, can think of, it, it, it's almost taken for granted that anger will overcome and end relationships. So then what is forgiveness? Well, forgiveness is deciding you don't owe me anymore. Whatever you have taken from me, whatever you have done to me to cause this rift, that's no longer between us. You don't owe me anymore. And it might feel like you are letting them off in that sort of situation. And you can say like, hey, they took this thing from me. They legitimately did me wrong. And they haven't even said I'm sorry for it. Yep. And, and, and I'm supposed to just let them off and decide they don't own me anymore? Yep. That's how it goes. That's how forgiveness works. Because ultimately, you're not just letting them off. You are letting yourself off in a way as well. You are saying this anger that I feel towards this person will no longer define my relationship with that person and everyone who reminds me of them and every situation that brings back those memories. That I will not bring this into my next relationship. I will not bring this into my marriage. I will not bring this back home to my kids. It will not follow me any longer. The answer to greed is to give. And if you were here a couple weeks ago, again, where Josh was preaching that sermon, highly, highly recommend that you go back and listen to it about how to how to give and be generous with and fight uh, like and uh, stray away from greed in our money in our money. But again, greed includes our time, our energy, our possessions, and our attention. And so, if you've ever found yourself wanting to give, but fearful of what you miss out, what you would miss out on if you gave, then give anyway. Amen. And uh, the, the way, again, like pulling from Andy Stanley once again, he says it this way, write a big to you, big hyphen to hyphen you, big to you, check. Write a big to you, check. It might not be big for the person next to you. It might not be big for the person behind you. It might be astronomical for the person sitting in front of you. But what matters is it is big to you in that it is overcoming any sort of preference that you have on how you would rather spend that. It's like if you feel like, you know, I think I could like give $20 and I wouldn't really feel the nip. Give more. You say, you know, I, I, I maybe have an hour before my next, uh, before like, I, I, I kind of set time aside for my hobby, and so I can spend that without feeling the pinch, give more. And by doing so, you are saying that greed will no longer become the filter through which all decisions of our resources have to pass. Mm -hmm. You're busting open that filter and saying like, no, my resources will be directed towards the people around me, and they don't have to flow through me first. And finally, the answer to jealousy is to rejoice, to celebrate. The antidote to jealousy is to rejoice in all things. There is no room for jealousy or comparison when we are celebrating the accomplish accomplishments or success of another person. There is no room for jealousy when we are celebrating and rejoicing. And that could look like this. <clears throat> 
so happy for you. That's it. You did it. <laughs> right? These things, again, these don't make emotional sense. The key is not to wait until you feel like doing it, because that means that something deep down on the inside just kind of like flipped a switch all of a sudden and changed. Like, no, that's not how things work. These, like rejoicing with someone doesn't, you don't have to feel like rejoicing in order to rejoice and celebrate with the person. But what you're doing is you're training yourself not to think about inserting yourself into that situation and imagining and dreaming like, oh, how awesome would my life be if I got that promotion or if I was able to go out with that girl or if I was able to uh, drive that car. But rather, you are looking for ways to see how their life is better yeah. as a result and to celebrate with them. And then, finally, to empathize with that joy, to feel their joy, to, to, to come alongside their joy and recognize it as your own. Yes. Genuinely glad for them because of their success, because you no longer are inserting your own happiness into their celebration. And again, these antidotes to forgive, to give, to confess and to rejoice, these are not emotions based. The indicators that set them off are, yes, they are emotions. It doesn't always mean if you feel anger or greed or jealousy, it doesn't always mean that something is wrong, you have to immediately go and fix it. It's just an indicator. We live our life according to principle and truth. We don't follow the indicator. You don't use your, your speedometer in order to get to your friend's house, right? You follow the GPS, but the speedometer helps you out on the and as much as our behavior mirroring our hearts, as much as our behavior will eventually mirror our hearts, that can also flow in the opposite direction. That if we change our behavior, it can go deep down onto the inside and change what is there as well. It doesn't become easier, but hopefully it'll become more natural. Can you imagine what the world would look like if we lived in this way, if anger was met with forgiveness, if greed was met with generosity, if jealousy was met with celebration and joy, how would your family look different? How would your interactions in the workplace be changed? How would the situations that we read in the newspapers be totally, radically turned on their heads because we choose to go against how we feel and to, <clears throat> to deal with the heart problem that sits underneath. What sort of reconciliation and peace would we see in our lives, in our families, in our friendships, at our workplaces? And I want to leave you with this encouragement. If you follow Jesus, or if you don't follow Jesus, this is something that, that God is very, very passionate about. He's very concerned with our hearts. He said it over and over and over again. And as a result, he has not left us to ourselves in this process. He has not said, this is the way that you should live. It goes against every fiber of your being. Have fun seeing the other side. That's not. He's awesome. He's way better, way, way, way better to us than that. And in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27, he says this. Those that are following him and are doing, living life the way that he wants them to, he says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees 
and be careful to keep my laws. Amen. God has promised that he is going to reverse the current pulling us towards this way of living. That he has not left us on our own to go against where our heart wants to pull us, but rather he is going to give us a new heart. Yes. To those who follow him and sign on to his way of living, he is saying, not only will your heart be changed, but I will give you a new one that thinks differently, that sees differently, that finds joy and celebration and jealousy, that wants to be generous in response to greed. And this is why we say that following Jesus will make your life better and make you better at life. Not because it's easy, not because following Jesus is like, oh, that's what I naturally want to do, and hey, it just kind of works out better on the other side. No, there's hard work. It really sucks sometimes, and there's going to be damage that is caused. But ultimately, following Jesus means that we get changed Amen. towards this way of living, towards a life of forgiveness and confession and honesty and generosity and celebration and rejoicing. This is why we say it makes your life better 